Well, good evening, everyone. If you join us at the start of the service, can I add my welcome to Alex? It's lovely uh, to see you here today, particularly if this is uh, your first time. You actually catch us right at the end of a series. We're in Luke's Gospel, and we're seeing Jesus is walking on the way to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's teaching us about what it means to follow him in the light of the cross. Um, you'll be helped, I think, to have your Bibles open. If you, if you uh, closed it already, it's on uh, page 1052. You'll need that open. And uh, if you have uh, this uh, mint-looking sheet, that'll give you an idea where I'm going. Also, it doubles up as a fan, uh, which you can uh, use to cool down the person next to you. And uh, feel free to nudge them if uh, the heat is making them fall asleep. You have my permission. Shall I, shall I lead us in prayer together? Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, sinless righteousness. Father, we pray that through this passage we would learn to take our gaze off ourselves and onto the risen Lord Jesus, the one who walked to Jerusalem to die, to suffer for us. Help us to walk in his path, Father. Help us to walk in his shadow. And we ask that tonight you would encourage us where we need encouraging and challenge us where we need challenging. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many worried parents in the morning congregation at the moment because lots of them have their teenagers who have just sat at reporting exams like GCSEs and A-levels and they're really worried, the parents that is, about the, uh, the exam results imminently coming through their door. I remember vividly, it was a time of great anxiety. You might remember it as well. Am I in my top choice in university or am I not? Am I wanted or am I not? Am I good enough or am I not? Well, the following uh, UCAS letter was, was sent around. It's been going around the internet recently. Apparently this is a genuine letter which UCAS sent back to a, an applicant recently. I'll, I'll read it out to you. Regard, it says at the top, regarding your application to Hogwarts University. <laughs> Dear applicant, We regret to inform you that your application to the stated establishment cannot be processed at this time due to the fact it does not exist. After consultation with our advisors, we have also determined that even if it did exist, the course Wandology would be highly in demand and would require at least two A's and a B. So, your handwritten grade sheet claiming top marks in waving a stick about wearing a pointy hat and watching Paul Daniels' TV specials sadly doesn't quite cut it. However, by applying through clearing, you may be suitable for a number of liberal arts uh, courses, which is good to know. (laughs) Alternatively, you may wish to resubmit next year by tying your letter to an owl and hoping for the best. (laughs) On behalf of you, Cass, I wish you every success. Yours sincerely, Mary Cook. Apparently that's genuine, I'm not sure. Well, tonight, our passage, if you have it open, it's not about how we might enter university, whether real or fictional. It's not even about how we might enter that top job. Tonight's passage is about how we might enter the kingdom of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Asked the rich man. Who can be saved? Asked the disciples. And really, there could be no more important question than that. And I know for many of us here tonight, it is actually a cause of great anxiety. Am I in or am I not? Am I wanted by God or am I not? Am I good enough 
or not. See, many of us, we, we, we might assume that entering the kingdom of God is a bit like competing for anything else in life, whether it be a university place or, or whether that top job in that law firm. We assume that the way into the kingdom of God is by being the best. We assume it's by having the top moral grades, by having the best spiritual CV. And, 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 and we imagine that, and that leads some of us to be very, very confident of ourselves. And it leads others of us to be completely crushed and racked with anxiety. Well, in our passage, Jesus, he, he completely torpedoes that idea that we can do anything to save ourselves. And I'm going to warn you tonight, it is going to be incredibly humbling for those of us who feel self-sufficient. But I hope it's going to be wonderfully encouraging For those of you here tonight who feel very weak and needy. Well, you'll see on your sheets where we're going. Our first point is this. The weak receive access to the kingdom. Look down with me in your Bibles to verse 15. Verse 15 on page 1052. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him bless them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. You can maybe imagine the scene. Jesus has got this sort of celebrity following. He's claiming to be the king of God's kingdom, the son of man. So people from all over Judea, they're following him on the road to Jerusalem. And you can imagine when Jesus takes a bit of a break, a bit of a pit stop, a sort of an orderly queue forms, the people wanting to talk to him. Uh, some people want to perhaps have a, do a miracle, heal them. Maybe some people want a bit of a theological chat. But we notice here a number of, number of parents are bringing their children to him to have him lay their hands on, him, on them and, and bless them. And you can picture the disciples, they're, they're acting like doormen at the, at the front of the queue, sort of determining who's worthy to talk to the king and who is not. And in their opinion, these babies are a complete waste of Jesus' time. Especially when they see just behind this bunch of kids that there's a rich young ruler who, you know, looks quite important. And so they're saying, no, get away, get away. And it might be our, we're thinking, well, this is, this is completely alien to us. Because in our culture, we, we kind of romanticize children, don't we? We, we, we love their beauty, their, their joy, their liveliness. You could go so far as to say our, our culture worships children. Our, our lives often revolve around their, their care. And so we might ask, well, what could be more natural than welcoming and blessing children? Well, this view of children is, in fact, a historical oddity. Throughout most of history, children were not seen as valuable, beautiful, or worthy of care. In fact, the first century AD, in the Greco-Roman world, they were considered to be non-persons. Did you know that? Back then, they had this carefully constructed worldview about how society was structured. Right in the middle was the, was the, uh, the freeborn adult males. They were the most powerful, important people in society. And then you can imagine these concentric circles going outwards to the least important people. And on the outside were the foreigners, were the slaves, were the women, and then the children, right on the outermost which is why, in these days, infanticide was as common as abortion. 
It's why paedophilia and, and pedestry were as common as, as the rape of women. They're common. And it was in the early centuries of the church when, when followers of Jesus, they began to speak out against these things. It was Christians who, who took in and, and adopted unwanted children. And they slowly, slowly, slowly began to transform the culture's way of thinking about children until it's similar to what we have today. And they did that because of verse 16. Look down with me. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It's funny, two very short, short sentences. Jesus takes that carefully constructed worldview about how society should be structured. He takes all those carefully constructed sort of concentric circles and he flips it completely inside out. He says the kingdom of God belongs not to those impressive and powerful people. No, it belongs to the likes of babies and little children. Why is that? Well, I need to boot an idea into touch. Naturally, we might be thinking, oh, it's because children are innocent. Children are innocent, aren't they? Now, that's a very, very modern idea. It actually dates back to the Victorian era. It's a very modern idea, and it's completely alien to the thinking of the Bible. And let me tell you, it's completely alien to my experience. You might think Chloe's very, very cute, holding daddy... (laughs) Holding daddy's hand as they sing the song. No, 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 no. You get her home and, and, you know, I ask her to do something. No. And she runs off in the opposite direction. Children are not innocent, let me tell you that. (laughs) No, the reason the kingdom of God is for the likes of children is not because of their alleged innocence. It's because of their incompetence. (laughs) Did you notice here in verse 15, the babies had to be brought to Jesus they wouldn't have got there by it themselves. Children, they, they have to depend because they cannot do. Children have to receive because they cannot earn. Jesus says the way into the kingdom is to be like that. We'll come back around to that idea a bit later on. But before we move on to our second point, I've just got a, a couple of applicatory questions for us. You see little bullet points on, on your sheet. Uh, first question is this. How might we be hindering children from coming to Jesus? And I appreciate many of us here, we, we might not have children. Some of us will have children. But whoever we are, it might be later on in life we, we might have children. So we need to think how this might help us. How might we be a bit like the disciples here, hindering children? It's funny, after the service in the morning in particular, parents often come up to me, newcomers come up to me, and they're very keen for me to baptise their children, to, to offer them the sign of belonging to God's family. And that is a good and a wonderful thing to do, and I commend it to you. But, but often in, in further conversation, you discover that actually their parents, they just want the baby baptised, and they have very little desire to actually raise the child to know and love Jesus. They, they, they don't really want to raise them in the church family. They just want the rite of passage. And that's a shame. In effect, they're hindering their children from hearing about Jesus. I also come across parents who, this is funny, they they delegate spiritual responsibility for their children to their children. 
you come across this. They need to make their own choice, Andy, people say. I'm not going to force them to come to this club or whatever. Now, on one level, that's, that's of course true, isn't it? At one, at one point, you know, children, they need to make their own decisions. When they're older, they need to make a choice. But if they didn't want to go to school, or if they didn't want to eat their meal, you wouldn't say, well, they need to make their own choice. Oh, you won't force them to go to school. Maybe they don't want to go. No, you, you, sort of, you make the decisions for them, don't you? Because you know better than they do. When the children are little, we, we make decisions for their good. And, and so we mustn't give them decisions which they're perhaps not yet ready to make. Um, we need to make the right decisions for them. But you might notice Jesus' point here, it's not in the first place actually about babies and children. Yeah, that, that's an aside. The, the real issue here is for anyone who lacks power or status. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to anyone such as these so my, my second question is this, how, how might we be hindering the powerless from coming to Jesus? That might be a more appropriate question for many of us here tonight. How might we be hindering the powerless? And actually this is an area where churches like us need to hang our head in shame, I think. Because historically, uh, conservative evangelical churches like ours, we've not been very good at reaching out to the weak. Uh, take a map of the UK. And if you were to plot on it where the, the Bible teaching churches are, it's a generalization, I know, but generally you'll find them in the white, mid, middle-class, tertiary-educated areas. Generally, we're not good at bringing the good news to the poor. Generally, we're not good at reaching out to foreigners. Generally, we're not good at discipling women. Instead, churches like ours have been focusing on generally wealthy, educated men, people right in the middle of that concentric circle. I think as we come to think about or rethink about the mission of St. John's, about how we might better bless and, and serve our area around us, I think we need to gaze hard at Jesus. And in particular, the Jesus revealed in Luke's Gospel. He was the man who was born as a weak baby. He was a man who ministered to the weak people. Here is a man who, when speaking about the kingdom, gives access to the weak and anyone who identifies with them. Well, you can imagine the, the babies are now at the queue. They're, they're now dealt with. They've all been blessed and, and they moved on. And now, and now behind them, the rich young man, he comes forward. A very different sort of chap. He, he would have been smack bang in the middle of that concentric circle thing, wouldn't he? But on the second point tonight, we discover that the kingdom of God, well, the wealthy deny themselves access to it. Look at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. It's a great question, isn't it? If you were to come up to me after the service and say, Andy, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'd be like, brilliant. Knock it out of the park. This is actually the sort of question we, we want to hear. It's this man, he, he genuinely wants to know how to enter, enter God's kingdom. But, but notice that his assumption is that he must do something to get in. 
He thinks he needs to earn his place by being good and perhaps by gaining the approval of this good teacher he's come to meet at the end of the queue. But Jesus, instead of, instead of a sort of taking that, that right um, sort of um, title, he, he directs this man's attention to the good God, to the God who gave the Ten Commandments, who are very helpfully plastered behind me on the wall over there if you've got exceptionally good eyesight. But uh, if you haven't got good eyesight, you can look down to verse 20. It says this, You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. Honour your mother and father. Now notice Jesus doesn't quote all ten. He actually quotes the last five of the Ten Commandments, which are the commands which are all about how we relate to other people, if you like, the horizontal axis. And, and the, the ruler, hearing these commands, goes, yeah, I've, I've done those since a boy. I've kept these. This guy, he genuinely thinks his spiritual CV is good enough to get him into the kingdom of God. But notice Jesus hasn't mentioned the top five Ten Commandments, which if your eyesight isn't quite good enough, begins with, you're to have no other gods before me. And then secondly, you should not make for yourself an idol. So in verse 22, Jesus therefore changes his sights and focuses on those commands. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, I've kept all these since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. I've taught this passage a number of times, often in small group context, often with folk who are sort of looking into Christian things and the Christian faith. And very often I follow up these words with a very quick caveat. I say something like this, ah, the issue here isn't so much money, it's not so much wealth, the issue here is idolatry. This man's idol was money, but your idol might be completely different. So we can kind of ignore this issue of money, push it to the side, let's talk about idolatry. What's your idol? And usually ban, so I've gone down that line. And of course that's, that's right, that's true. But I think the, the fact that we want to hear that caveat... We want to hit the sort of the money being moved to one side. It, it kind of shows we need to hear this teaching, doesn't it? And if you've been here over this past term, the reason Luke keeps on hitting this issue of money and wealth and possessions is, is because, not because he sees it as an innately evil. It's, it's because he knows that for many of us here, it is the very source of our self-security. Our wealth is the basic reason that we find it so hard to cry out to God for help. Because put honestly, we don't feel we need to. Because we've got everything. The reason this wealthy man goes away sad is because he realizes he can't cling on to his self-security as well as have Jesus. He can't have both. So he leaves sad. And, and you'll see in verse 24, Jesus' heart, it goes out to this man. It really does. Look at verse 24. Jesus looked at him and, and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's, like it, it's easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You might know that throughout the centuries, many people have struggled with this verse. It seems to be saying that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so people are sort of worried about this, saying, right, we need to sort of re-engineer this verse to make it mean what it clearly does mean. Um, so someone once came up with the idea, well, okay, what if, what if the eye of the needle is in fact a certain gate in Jerusalem, which is particularly difficult for a camel to get through because it's so small. So essentially they're saying, it's not impossible to get through into the kingdom of God if you're a rich man. It's just a little bit hard. Great theory, isn't it? Small snag, no evidence for it whatsoever, none. This verse does clearly say what it says. Camels are huge. Eyes of needle, tiny. It's impossible to get them through. Even if you put it through a, vent, like a blender, even then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get it through. It's impossible. And so it is impossible for this man to be saved. Because his wealth made him inherently self-secure and self-dependent. Now, before our minds start laying into the wealthy out there with their enormous gated mansions and, oh, that's them and their house owners, that's not me, before we think, ah, oh, this, this is just for the rich, well, firstly, you are rich. <laughs> but secondly, notice how the disciples react when this wealthy man goes away sad. It hits them like a bombshell. Look at, I think, uh, look at verse 26. They, they ask, who then can be saved? You see, this, this ruler, this wealthy ruler, he represents the very best of their society. He was moral. He was religious. He was upright. He was wealthy. He, he looked blessed by God. So for them, they can't get their heads around it. If it's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God, then what chance do we have? It's a bit like Stephen Hawking failing a physics exam, and you're going, well, what chance do I have? Who, who then can be saved? They ask. And then there is those sweet, sweet words in verse 27. Did you see that? Look at verse 27. Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. I have three questions for you again. Three little bullet points on your sheet. First question is this, have you accepted that it is impossible to save yourself? I come from one of those cultural backgrounds, my, my, my schooling and my university background, I come from one of those backgrounds where I've been culturally conditioned to be self-sufficient. I've been taught from a very young age to stand on my own two feet, to not to appear weak or needy, but to be master of my own destiny. I've been taught to be a doer and not a dependent. I've been taught to be an earner and not someone who receives. Which means I'm more likely to drown than to cry out for help because I'm that proud. I have this background. I can tell you it's the very opposite of what Jesus teaches here. Maybe you've got a similar background as you think about it. Friends, the only way into the kingdom of God is to admit you can't get in. Instead, we've got to be like those little children 
who completely depend on their parents. We've got to completely depend on Jesus. Have you accepted it is impossible to save yourself? Second question for you. Have you seen that salvation is possible with Jesus? Let me tell you a story. In uh, the year 1510, there was a young monk called Martin. And uh, he was on this pilgrimage to to Rome. And uh, in Rome, you might know there's the Scala Sancta called the Holy Steps. Allegedly, the the steps which Jesus um, was before when he was uh, um, standing before Pilate. And and at some point in time, someone ripped them out of Jerusalem and then dumped them in Rome. And pilgrims uh, like this monk Martin on the way to Rome, they they, they thought that by uh, by climbing these steps, they they would uh, somehow get forgiveness from God. They would gain penance from God. So this young monk, he began climbing the steps, and he did it on his bare knees, on his knees, the long, long flight of steps. Each one he'll bend down and he'll kiss. With each step he would recite the Lord's Prayer. It took him hours to reach the very top. And then when he reached the top, he stood up and he looked all the way back down those stairs, and he cried out, Who knows if it's enough? Who knows if it's enough? Maybe you're here tonight and you feel the same way. Perhaps this is a cause of great anxiety for you. Am I forgiven or not? That was really what that young man realized that day. His name was Martin Luther. He went on to kick off the Reformation. And what he realized that day is that as long as he looked to himself and his own religion, his own morality, his own good deeds, as long as he looked to himself for forgiveness, the only thing going to come back to him is this question, is it enough? Is it enough? Is it enough? But wonderfully, Jesus says here, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And you might have noticed, as as Megan read earlier on, at the very next passage, Jesus reminds us that he's on the road to Jerusalem. He says there that the Son of Man is going to be mocked. He's going to be insulted. He's going to be spat on. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. And Jesus, he knows that, right? He knows that's what's going to happen. And yet he's walking in that direction. Why? He's walking there because he knows that all those people following him, they can't do the law. They can't obey the commands. They can't do enough to get into his kingdom. So Jesus has his eyes fixed on the cross. And he says, well, I've kept those commands. I've lived the perfect life. And I'm going to die in their place. And I'm going to be risen for their justification. That's why Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. You see, salvation, it's promised with Jesus. Whereas with me, it's just, who knows? I've got a last question for you. Are, are you willing to let go of your wealth? I'm told in Africa, monkeys are a real pest. We think monkeys are really cute, don't we, here in the, in the West? They're a nightmare. If you, if you go on safari, they're always ripping the wing mirror off your car or things like that. And, um, farmers in, in Africa, for, for generations, they've been hunting monkeys the exact same way. They, they find a, a tree and they, they drill a hole in the tree which is just big enough for a monkey to get, to get its sort of hand into. 
And in, in the hole, they, they put a nut or a, or a, or a, or a fig or, or something which, which the, the monkey wants to get at, and then they just leave it. And the monkey comes along, sees the nut, and puts his hand in, grabs the nut, but now he's grasped it, now he's got a clenched fist. It's not big enough for him to pull his hand out. And monkeys are thick, and um, they're thinking, right, I've got the nut, I want the nut, but I need to get free. <laughs> and but, and they're, they're there for hours, pulling, pulling, pulling. And they want, they want the nut, but they also want the freedom, but they're not willing to give up the nut. And so the hunter comes along, just sort of whacks him over the head, and that's a dead monkey. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> if, you, if, you want to know, if you want to know whether your wealth if you want to know whether your wealth is an idol for you, if you want to know whether it's a cause of your self-sufficiency, if you want to know whether it's blocking you from entering the kingdom of God, try letting go. Try giving enough of it away so that you actually notice it's gone. Not just skimming off the top, but giving enough away so that you can't go on the same sort of holiday you might like to. You can't buy every gadget you might want to. You can't buy the new car which you might have wanted to. Try letting go and you'll find you'll be liberated. (laughs) You'll be freed. Because friends, Jesus says if we can't let go of our wealth, if we can't be like little children, completely dependent, then we will leave sad. But I don't want you to leave today sad. Nor does Jesus. He wants you to leave tonight smiling and rejoicing to give up willingly what uh, might be precious to us. Uh, Our final point is very, very brief. And we might be asking, well, what's going to motivate me to be so radical in my giving, in my time, in my service? Well, here's our final point. The weak receive a foretaste of the kingdom. Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Now, Peter isn't bragging here. If you remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, when when Jesus calls Peter, he really did leave his home, the security of his home, the security of his family, the security of his business. He left all of that to follow Jesus. And Peter's worried now because he's just seen this brilliant man walk away from Jesus sad. And he's wondering, well, I've left a lot for Jesus, and is, is that enough? And he's wondering, has all of that been pointless? Is all of that for nothing? He wants some sense of reassurance, doesn't he? We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And maybe we want some sense of reassurance that if we're radical, well, what will it mean for us? Well, verse 29 is wonderful, and I hope it's a real help. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, following Jesus will be incredibly costly. Jesus doesn't pull our will over our eyes in any sense, it will be very costly. But boy, is it worth it. 
It is worth it. Not only in the kingdom of God and what will happen then, but it is worth it even now as we're given a foretaste, an hors d'oeuvre of the kingdom, which is his church. There is someone here who, um, in our church, who has lost their family because they've chosen to follow Jesus. This person will tell you that that is incredibly painful. But they'll tell you that they have gained a new family. And that is us. And so every week, they're here with their new family. They gave up brothers and sisters, but they gained a whole family. There is a family in our church who, who consistently have to decline invites to children's parties because um, many uh, kids, they have parties on Sunday mornings. And so you can imagine for their kids, it's really hard for them constantly saying no to these, to these party invites. And the kids are asking, well, mum, dad, listen, I want to go to the party. And the parents, they say to their kids, no, today's the day when we meet with our family. Today's a family day. And so they're teaching their children, are we prioritizing being a part of God's kingdom rather than going to parties? And they're here every week, rain or shine. There's someone in our church who, for a variety of reasons, has decided to remain single. And they decided not to marry and therefore not to have children. They've forgone a wife and children in that sense. And they've done that in the hope that they might therefore be more useful to the kingdom of God. They might have more time to give to kingdom work. That's a great thing. And you know what? Because of that, they're here every week because they want to be with their family. They want to be with their little children, Chloe, little nephews and nieces. There's a couple in a church who are incredibly wealthy. And uh, they were thinking about buying a, one of those sort of countryside estates to go to at the weekends. And they're thinking through this. But, but they decided not to for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because instead, they said that we'd prefer to be with our family on Sundays. And we'd rather use our London home for hospitality. And they made that decision for the sake of the kingdom. They'd rather be with their church. You see, following Jesus will be very, very costly. Depending on him, like a child foregoing some of those really good things in life. It will be costly. But friends, it is infinitely worth it. Not only now, but in eternity. So please today, don't go away sad. Oh no. Go away liberated. Let go of your wealth. Let go of your self-sufficiency. And run to Christ. And run to certainty of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you love us so much. Thank you for sending us your son. That even though we are lawbreakers, even though we are idolaters, you would send your son to die for us. You love us. Father, help us to let go of our self-sufficiency. Help us to depend entirely on what Christ has done. Help us to be like those children. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.